This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Mark Leonard. Mark Leonard is the director of the European Council for Foreign Relations. Mark, back in 2005, you wrote this pretty famous book now, Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century. What were the reasons, or the main reasons, why you were so confident then that Europe would, in fact, run the 21st century? Well, I thought that the European Union had stumbled upon uh, something which was pretty amazing, which was changing the nature of, of politics in different places. And I kind of argued in the book that this way of thinking about how political power could be organised was uh, the most profound change since the creation of the nation state 500 years ago. And it was a way of basically uh, getting countries to uh, give, to get access to the kind of size and bulk that you need in, in areas where you have to be really big to be competitive, so having the biggest market in the world, um, being able to work together to tackle climate change and organised crime and other things where size matters. But at the same time, to keep the things that people really care about organised very close to the to the people. So the EU has no role in, in dealing with um, uh, setting tax levels or uh, delivering services or pensions or other sorts of things. And I sort of thought that this uh, model which the EU had developed, which basically changed the, the rules uh, of how countries work together, moved away from the idea that countries wouldn't interfere with each other's internal affairs, that they have a balance of power between them, that they would keep secrets away uh, from each other, and moving towards this sort of way of, of living together where uh, disputes were dealt with by the rule of law and uh, where interdependence was seen as a, as a, as a sort of guarantee for... Um, uh, for, for, for peace and for security w was quite profound and I saw how uh, I, I thought it was particularly well suited to a world of interdependence and that it would gradually spread in four ways firstly because the EU itself would enlarge and the story of my lifetime has been of uh, the EU gradually uh, growing going from 6 to 9 to 12 to 15 to uh, 25 to 27 uh, to 28 uh, member states. Secondly, at that time, it felt like there was a sort of osmotic process where the European neighbourhood was being transformed. So there'd been the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Countries outside seemed to be embracing the European way of working. Thirdly, the EU had been behind the creation of a whole new series of global institutions which embodied a European way of working, which were very different from the sort of Bretton Woods institutions created after the Second World War by the Americans mainly. The institutions like the World Trade Organization, uh, the International Criminal Court, the Kyoto Protocol. And finally, I thought that the EU had set off a sort of regional domino effect and that other regions would come together and um, emulate some of the things which made the EU work. And you'd have a world run neither by the United States nor by the United Nations, but with different regions coming together in their own ways. And around that time, you, you know, the African Union had been created, which was self-consciously modelling itself on the European Union, Mercosur, ASEAN, um, and uh, the Arab League. Every region had its own kind of new... Uh, institutions. So the basic idea that the, the I was trying to, to capture then in 2005 was 
this idea of transformative power, that the EU was coming together um, itself and uh, sharing power in a new way, not like a federal state, but by having a horizontal uh, spread of power along a network, and that it was uh, through these four different ways gradually going to change the way that politics got organised in, in other places. So I said in the book, I don't think that Europeans will be the most powerful countries in the world, the ones with the biggest military spending, but the European way of doing things could gradually become the world's way of doing things. Okay, so as a way of asking you where we stand now in 2016, if you were to write a similar book now, what, what would be your take, what would be your angle, what would be your focus, what would be the title of the book? Well, the big question is, you know, that the book then was called um, Will Europe Run the 21st... Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century? So the question which people are wondering now is whether the 21st century is going to run Europe. So um, <laughs> rather than seeing Europeans coming together and transforming the world around them, um, the, the danger now is that Europeans are being driven apart and they see uh, their neighbours actually having transformative power over us. And rather than exporting norms and values uh, to change our neighbourhood, people are worried about us importing chaos and refugees from our neighbours. And there's a sort of new zeitgeist around the European Union that after hundreds of years where Europe was at the centre of history and was shaping uh, the world and forcing other people to respond to, to, to what we were doing, now we seem to be on the receiving end of history and um, the world uh, is out of control and the chaos in the world outside is actually reshaping our societies, our politics, our economies. And a lot of the things which people felt optimistic about in the 1990s, particularly the idea of interdependence, um, are now seen as, as kind of big threats. I mean, I, I've got this strong feeling that um, the, the EU, one of the paradoxes about the EU is that it, it was uh, a project that was designed to help protect Europe from communism, but at the same time it, there was a sort of neo-Marxist logic behind it, that from the Schumann Declaration onwards, that people thought that if you um, create a common economic base and remove the barriers between economies, um, you know, from the coal and steel community to the single market to the euro, that the political superstructure will, will kind of follow and that people will embrace each other and that interdependence will eliminate conflict. But instead, what's happened is, is though that process has been incredibly successful and actually arguably has helped to stop countries going to war with each other, most of the uh, problems that define European politics now are about the the are about elements of interdependence. People are worried about the euro crisis and financial contagion. Um, people are worried about refugees, about terrorism, um, and about free trade, and about the free movement of people and migration. And the challenge now for the, the next stage of the EU is not about pulling the barriers down between peoples and nations, uh, but it's rather about whether governments can make interdependence safe for, for citizens. Okay, but even without Brexit, um, there's a very strong feeling maybe Europe may not be disintegrating, but it's certainly fragmenting. Is that a, an overstatement? I think that's right. I think that you, what we've got is a kind of differentiated disintegration. 
So the most extreme thing is is countries choosing to leave, like the UK, which might still happen. Um, but even short of that, there are other kinds of disintegration which are going on. There is uh, the fact that um, uh, countries are calling referenda, maybe not about whether they're in the EU or not, but to overturn uh, bits of the EU. So Orbán's mm. uh, referendum on the, the refugee um, quotas, uh, the Dutch referendum on the um, uh, association agreement with Ukraine. Uh, we did a piece of work where we talked to the representatives of 55 insurgent parties around Europe and we found that they're calling for 35 different referenda in 18 member states on, on EU-related issues. The third thing is is um, countries just not implementing what they've signed up to. So we're seeing that more and more. But that's not a new thing, is it? <clears throat> It's more uh, it's more common and it's done in a more brazen way. People are right. boasting about it, and it's very widespread. You know, it's it's Spain and Portugal not staying within their fiscal limits. The you know uh, the Italians not meeting the capital requirements on banks. The French François uh, Manuel Valls, the French Prime Minister, says that he's not going to implement the postal the postal workers. workers directive. So you've got a whole series of, of different um, uh, things. And, and obviously the, the, the other very visible thing is the, the refugee quotas, which, um, which a lot of member states are signing up to. So that's, that's another dimension of disintegration. And then the kind of final one, I think, is, is the fact that more and more we're seeing um, uh, different groups of countries coming together and, and organising their own kind of mini EUs. And there are these big ideological conflicts. So there was Cypress's attempt to organise a, a southern club to question author, uh, austerity. There's the Visegrad countries coming together and talking about launching a cultural counter-revolution. Um, you've got you had the original six founding members coming together the day after or the, the couple of days after the British referendum and that is a, another kind of splintering in, in the old days um, Joschka Fischer used to talk about pioneer groups and you'd have things like Schengen where some countries will come together to do things but the assumption was that everyone else would follow afterwards whereas now this small groupism often is a kind of disintegration rather than something which can drive integration Okay, the last question. You just said, uh, en passant, um, Brexit might still happen. Does that mean that Brexit might not happen? Well, I think that it's quite likely uh, that Britain will leave the European Union, um, but how and in what way is still a mystery to, to many people in the UK. But also... Uh, you know, having claimed that Europe would run the 21st century um, uh, in 2005, I'm somewhat humble about making <laughs> bold predictions about the future. And one thing that is very clear is that politics has become much less predictable, much more choppy, and uh, very, very surprising things are happening. Very few people thought Jeremy Corbyn would become leader of the Labour Party. Very few people thought Donald Trump would be uh, the Republican nominee. Very few people thought that uh, that Britain would vote to leave the European Union. So um, we know that it's going to be a dizzyingly complex process to actually extricate Britain from the EU after over 40 years of, of being within it. And the politics within the Conservative Party, within the House of Commons and within the, the British nation are going to be very, very 
difficult around it. And I think it's it's too early to know uh, how the British internal debate is going to play out, let alone how that then intersects with big political changes in Germany and France, in the Netherlands, in other places which are going to have elections. Mark Leonard, thank you very much for your time.